Hey, Geeks Radio listeners, all these years you've listened to the Totally Super Podcast, the Trek Off Podcast, the Pop Off Podcast, and wondered, hey, is there a way I can get my message out there on these podcasts? Well, finally there is. You see, we're making a brand new movie called Cancellation. The plot of the movie is this. What happens when your stereotypical sitcom girlfriend realizes that she's just a character on a sitcom and that sitcom is coming to an end, which means she's going to cease to exist? Can she convince her friends to help her fight against the show just so they can all survive? Well, that's the question of the movie. And you can help us make it by going to Kickstarter and donating to the movie. You can get there easily. Just go to getcanceled.com. That's getcanceled.com. Now, Kickstarter always has rewards. And one of the rewards on there, along with the other millions of awesome things you can get, actually allows you to get a message out on Trek Off or Totally Super. That's right. You get the reward. You're going to get a DVD with it and a poster, digital downloads of a bunch of stuff you can't get anywhere else, and a chance to get your message heard on Trek Off or Totally Super. Now, there are other rewards. Go check it out. It's going to be an awesome movie and we really, really need your help. So I'm asking you, as someone who's listened to our podcasts, to please help us make Cancellation the motion picture. Okay, on to the show. The following contains plot spoilers and the comments and opinions expressed herein are for entertainment and commentary purposes only and may not reflect the actual opinions of Geeks Radio or the individual hosts. So don't get mad, it's just a show. In a world where superheroes made the jump from the comic book's page to the silver screen, 23 separate people decided to do a podcast about it, and we're so very glad that you listened. This is Totally Super. Welcome to Totally Super, where we review every superhero movie ever made. That's right, we it's totally glorious. do, and it's going to be awesome. It's, I think it's very glorious that we're going to be doing yeah. every superhero movie. We're going to be doing them all in this podcast right now. You know, we should, we, we should probably just get all of our stupid character voices out of the way right yeah. now so we can... <laughs> Welcome to Tony <laughs> Super. <laughs> oh boy! Um, <laughs> I think it's a good idea to do Tony Super. Um, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Dirty Tony. Yes, to kill you. Yes, we we um, yeah, we should. Our, our first thing we should discuss the fact that Elmo was a major personality in this film split. I thought that was an interesting choice. Yeah, so Elmo's going to get here. Elmo knows the beast is coming. Um, <laughs> so. This is totally super, where we are just totally stupid. Um, we're doing Split, uh, the M. Night Shyamalan film from uh, 2016, uh, the precursor to the upcoming Glass, the pseudo the pseudo sequel spinoff to Unbreakable, um, and the return to greatness, the return to form, uh, as some have said, for... M. Night Shyamalan, who had suffered. Yeah, some this real was a problems. film that uh, when this came out, like the really, I didn't see it in the theater, but the the basic, really the only major review that I read of it, uh, all the headlines were like, "Holy crap, it's a good Shyamalan film again." We never thought we'd see the day. Well, let's let's talk about um, Night for just a little bit. Of course, we've talked about the fact that he, you know, he did the Sixth Sense, and we all loved the Sixth Sense and saw that that was wonderful. Unbreakable. We talked about how good and important it is, and then we had a bit of a, a turndown after that. We had Signs, which I still think that Signs was a big hit, uh, but it had a um, Signs had a. A great sense of tension, good performances, but was the first one to get really like when you think about it, it doesn't work at all, right? 
Like the, I, yeah, like I the... loved Signs. I, I saw it in the theater, and it is the first time in my life that I can remember actually screaming like a uh, like a little child in the theater. Yeah, uh, when the, when the this, hand comes, yeah. When the hand, oh yeah. So it was a fantastic, it was an electric experience. I loved it. It is also the first of Shyamalan's films where the flaws really start to show themselves. Wait a minute. They went to a, a planet that's two-thirds water where the people <laughs> on it are made up of 80% water? And water's yeah. their problem? It does. Yeah, that's the thing is that like all of all of Shyamalan's bad guys do seem to have some really glaring weaknesses. Um, you know, And those one of weaknesses are all or, or, water. And, 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 and it's always water. Con- narratively convenient weaknesses, which we will definitely be addressing as we discuss Split. You know, like the water on Unbreakable and the water in uh, in Signs and also the water in The Happening. Also, the problem with the lady in the water. Yes. Yes. The water. Well, I will say maybe- that, yeah, Lady in the Water was uh, one of his next ones. And uh, that one was where I also enjoyed that one. But that one was really the start of a lot of his films starting to really go off the rails. Oh, for um, me, it was the village. I, I was I was such a fan of this guy. I love the sixth sense. Then we, you know, we talked about how great I thought Unbreakable was. And when Signs came out, I was a defender of it. I was like, "Look, man, it's a, it's a yarn. It's a story. It's a it's a mm-hmm. campfire story, and and it's no sillier than the War of the Worlds if you really think about it. It's like like yeah, just that's very enjoy true. Enjoy it. Enjoy what they're doing. But then you get to the village, and the village is all atmosphere. And then you get to the end of it, and it's like, oh. Okay, and Adrian Brody does this weird performance in it, and okay, and then the lady in the water I skipped, and then I just heard about the happening with, which I still haven't seen, but evidently like Marky mm-hmm. Mark at some point starts like pleading with a plant and telling it I'm sorry. Um, <laughs> so yeah, yeah, um, we go from that to uh, after the happening to the last Airbender, which. From what I understand, I've never I've never watched the show and I've never seen the movie, but I've heard the movie is a really bad and b the movie is sacrilege if you watch the show. Did you watch the show? And yeah, watch the I'm movie? I'm actually I'm actually uh, Kelly and I are watching our way through Last Airbender right now. Um, the the the, the series, and uh, it's it's quite good. Um, and it really is. Last Airbender was the first in many ways of this new. Uh, a sort of a new crop of animation uh, where essentially, you know, there are writers out there who are saying, oh, we can do a lot more with children's cartoons than just sell merchandise like they did in the 80s and 90s. We can tell stories. We can affect change. We can really uh, we can tell stories worth telling. Uh, so from Last Airbender, you know, then you started moving into, uh, you know, My Little Pony, Friendship is Magic, which is just uh, – which is astonishingly uh, good and mature in I'm gonna a lot throw, of ways. I'm going to throw Clone Wars in there too. The Clone Wars is yeah. also one of the yeah. Um, mm-hmm. Clone Wars. Uh, so the did new, you see the movie? Uh, the, you, the, of Clone Wars. Did you Wars? see Shyamalan's? Yeah. The, no. 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 The last. Oh no! Airbender. I didn't did see, the, see the movie. Um, I did. I, I I saw like maybe ten minutes of it at one point and was like, oh yeah, this this doesn't look good. Um, and then he yeah, did, there were he there were a, there were a lot of Last Airbender people who were really angry at it because the the series is so iconic to so many people. And I've heard if you don't like the Last Airbender, there's literally no reason to see the movie. 
Um, so if yeah, you, the too. only reason to see the movie is that you like the last Airbender, and if you if you like the last Airbender, you're not going to like it. Then he did After Earth, which is a Will Smith, Jaden Smith vanity piece about how Jaden Smith is on on a basically the the you know spoiler alert earth has been decimated and he's on earth facing the wild so he can learn that will smith is a really good dad um mm-hmm. n- never saw it uh probably never will considered to be spectacularly bad um wow and then in tw- in 2015 when and, and if you write around this time there was a hack of sony emails if you really want to go down the rabbit hole of sony emails you can find like you can find just this like treasure trove of what like Amy Pascal, who's in charge of Sony, thought of actual things. And it was like put out by WikiLeaks. And one of the things was that uh, when After Earth came out, that Shyamalan's name needed to be kept off of it because his name was now box office poison. That Nobody yeah. trusted him and putting his name on a film meant that the film was going to do bad because people were just like, I don't want to see movies by this guy anymore. I'm done. Yeah. I'm done. Yeah. I didn't even, I didn't Shyamalan. realize that that Shyamalan was the director of After Earth until long after the fact. Yeah, because they didn't put his name anywhere on it. Um, mm-hmm. And despite that, it was a bad movie. So he took his own money, mortgaged his house, and paid for the visit uh, on on his own. Really? Which is, found foot, which is a found footage film that is really weird, pretty creepy, and effective in its own right. It's not great. It's not like the best thing ever, but it is a top you know, little film at... And now Sean that I remember it, made, it, yeah, it wasn't. Now that I remember it, it wasn't Split that had people talking about. Oh, hey, this was pretty good. It was The Visit that first really started surprising people by like, oh wait, Shyamalan's back on his game. And The Visit for a five million dollar budget made quite a lot of money. It did pretty well on a five million dollar budget. I think it made something like a, like like a hundred million altogether or something. Um, not not too uh, shabby here, at I can, all. I can look it up. Yeah, ninety eight point five million worldwide over a five million budget. So from that, he self financed his next film, Split, and that's the film we're going to review today. Um, this film was an enormous hit. This was a, you know, I'll just, we'll jump into the the, the dollars real quick and then we can get into your plot. Mm-hmm. Um, but uh, this film, I'm going to go right here to split. Sorry about that. Uh, this film had a budget of $9 million and made $278.5 million at the box office. Um, wow. This was an astounding success. Um, to and, and as, you know, if you look at, his films before, like The Sixth Sense, they cost a ton of money to not a ton, but they a good amount of money to make because of stars and stuff. Um, so, in mm-hmm. terms of profitability by ratio, this is right up there as one of the yeah. most successful so, and independently produced horror movies ever. Um, and is just you know it's remarkable for that reason alone. So, so M Night Shyamalan, as of Split, is back. We'll uh, talk briefly about our feelings pre-glass at the end of this podcast. But that's where we are uh, with Shyamalan uh, at this point. People are still feeling burned after all of the crap that this guy puts out. But then the visit has gotten just a, a crack in the in the crap shield that this guy has around There's him. There's cautious the optimism. Pe- yeah. Or, or maybe a weaker pessimism. Like, you know, <laughs> at, at this point, like people, people don't, 
you know, they still think, oh, he's terrible. He may he happened to to stumble into this one weird, you know, found footage film. But, you know, could he do a movie like this again? That's what we're going to talk about today. But what is the plot of Split? All right. The plot of Split is as follows. The film opens with three high school girls leaving a birthday party. Claire and Marsha, who appear to be your average run-of-the-mill teenage girl stock characters, and Casey, a withdrawn, detention-prone girl who the other girls think has some kind of issues, with a capital I. As they get in the car with Claire's father, he is overpowered and knocked unconscious, leaving the three girls to be kidnapped by James McAvoy doing his best Walter White from Breaking Bad impression. The man, who we later find out is named Kevin, or kind of, brings the girl into a windowless room somewhere. Claire and Marsha want to try and fight their way out immediately. Casey says they need to get more info before trying anything, adopting a more cunning approach. We flash back to a five-year-old Casey in a restaurant, watching a conversation between her father and Uncle John about something called buck fever, which I should point out is a phrase that has stuck in my head for a lot longer than it should. Buck fever. The three of them are on a hunting trip, it seems. Flash forward to the present and the office of therapist Dr. Karen Fletcher. She receives an email from a patient named Barry requesting an emergency meeting. It turns out that Barry is also James McAvoy, though with a heavy Boston accent and a keen interest in high fashion. Back in the windowless room, the girls try to look for a way out, when they hear a woman's voice talking to their captor. They call for help, but the door opens to reveal, yet again, James McAvoy, this time as a proper English lady. She reassures them that Dennis, who we gather is the Breaking Bad James McAvoy, knows not to harm them because he knows what they are here for, to be sacred food. Dun, dun, dun. We jump to Dr. Fletcher giving a web conference about disassociative identity disorder and how she has discovered her patient's power of belief in their own identities is so strong that it affects actual change in their body chemistry. One identity being allergic to bees, for example, or another being very strong. She hypothesizes that the trauma these people have undergone has in fact allowed them full access to the power of the human brain on an almost supernatural level. And from here, the movie jumps back and forth between three separate storylines. The first, involving the girls, leads them to trying a few methods of escape, which ultimately fail but cause all three of them to be held in now separate rooms. Casey befriends another of Kevin's personas, a nine-year-old boy named Hedwig. Hedwig has the ability to put Kevin's other personas to sleep, and he used this to wrest control of Kevin from Barry, who was kind of the group leader, and give control to Dennis and Patricia, who had been placed in some kind of multiple personality time out because of their weird, disturbing beliefs. What disturbing beliefs? I'm glad you asked. In the second storyline, Dr. Fletcher starts figuring out that maybe Barry is not really Barry, but instead Dennis putting on a show. Through their conversations, it becomes clear that Dennis and Patricia believe in a dark and powerful being called the Beast, a 24th personality of Kevin's who they say is on the move. When he arrives, he will change the world and consume the impure. The third storyline, told in flashback, follows Child Cassidy on the hunting trip, where it becomes clear that she is being abused by her uncle. At one point, she threatens him with a shotgun but can't pull the trigger. This story culminates in the final scene of Cassidy at her father's funeral, where her uncle tells her he'll take good care of her from now on. As we race toward the climax of the film, Dr. Fletcher follows Kevin back to his hideout, where she discovers the three imprisoned girls, but she is knocked out by Dennis before she can alert the authorities. Dennis, that night, walks through a train station into a deserted Amtrak train, and we see him undergo a transformation into the Beast, who it suddenly appears really does have superhuman strength and abilities. 
The Beast rushes back to the hideout, where he actually kills and feeds on Claire and Marsha because they were impure since they had not suffered. There's a real suffering-gives-you-strength theme going on here. He kills Dr. Fletcher because she knows too much. Casey tries to stop him with the shotgun that she discovered, thanks to Kevin taking control for one brief moment and trying to do the right thing. She does manage to pull the trigger this time, but oh horrors, the buckshot doesn't even pierce the beast's skin! The beast is about to consume her too, but then discovers the scars on her arms and stomach. She too has been abused and suffered, which means that she is, in fact, pure. So with the cry of, rejoice, the beast leaves her alone and disappears. Casey is rescued, and it turns out she was being kept at the zoo where Kevin worked. We see many shots of lions and tigers, indicating that's how the beast personality was inspired. We end on a scene of Hedwig, Dennis, and Patricia all talking to each other, all of them very excited about how the Beast will reveal their strength to the world. End credits. But wait! A sudden scene of a news report about this guy named Kevin who kidnapped these girls and is still at large. Due to his disassociative identity disorder, the media has given him the spooky nickname, The Horde. A woman, watching in a diner, says, Hey, that's like the guy they locked up 15 years ago. They gave him a name, too. What was it? Camera pans to Bruce Willis, who says... Mr. Glass, back to credits and Fiend. So that is the plot of Split. Can I can I jump in with one thought immediately? Go and right thought, ahead. Yeah, my thought is this: if Casey was not the main character of this movie, but instead uh, it was, but instead Marsha was the main character of this movie, Casey would be a freaking idiot. Uh, because Marsha had it right. If the three of them just attacked him, like as hard as they could, and like got a got got a a you know t- took off like one of their shirts because they're just gonna have to, um, because mm-hmm. I guess they do, um, and like because wrapped it around reasons. his neck, and the then the three of them as hard as they could just took like there's a there's a bed in the room, there's stuff in the room you can pick up. If they all just attacked as hard as they could they probably would have had a fairly good chance of getting out. Mm-hmm. And yet, it's Casey who's like, no, we need to wait for more information. And by waiting for more information, she lets, she lets things go further down the tubes to the point where like Marsha's like, okay, well, I guess I'm going to just try to escape on my own. Yeah, and that doesn't go well. It's like, like Marsha's first thought was correct. There's three of you. There's one of him. And it's three mm-hmm. of you, one of him. Maybe it won't work. But your best bet that everyone except for Casey has agreed to is let's just band together and get him. And let's keep in mind yeah. from Marsha and what's uh, um, what's the other uh, friend's Claire. name? From, from Marsha and Claire's point of view, it did not work out. It did not yes, work. Their plan not did all. not work. They died horribly. And actually Casey lived. It didn't. And here's. <laughs> all right. So I let me jump off of that because I. There, there is a lot to like about this film. There's a lot of really good points to this film, but I'm not going to be able to get to any of them until I can address the one reason why this, yeah, this film was a success. It was a critical success. People liked it. This film is a colossal failure to me in one major way. And I'm like, uh, and that is, let me ask you. So the film essentially ends with Casey surviving, the beast arriving, and, uh, you know, and the beast arriving and being in the world had 
any of the other characters just done nothing? Uh, Doctor, had Dr. Fletcher not figured anything out and just sat in her home? Had Casey and the other girls not tried to escape and just sat there? The ending would not have been any different. Casey would have survived because not of any actions that she herself took, but because she had been abused, which meant that she was somehow pure to the beast. And I mean, the only difference is that Dr. Fletcher would be alive. But the two major things, the beast's survival and Casey's survival, are in no way impacted by any choices that were made during this film. Uh, all right, so I'm gonna di- I'm gonna disagree slightly with that, and I hear what you're saying, and we can't like we can't you know, say and like that that is the makes a film live or die. I mean, Raiders of the Lost Ark has the same problem that had Indy done nothing, Raiders of the Lost Ark would have ended up exactly the same. As a matter of fact, yeah, and, and Hitler and, might obviously Hitler might have film, gotten the film's the not a. Yeah, so like yeah <laughs> the film's um, not obviously the film's not a failure but from a storytelling perspective this is something that all you know and yes Raiders of the Last Ark also is this this is something that really sticks in my craw um, from a storytelling perspective in that you've got this protagonist and the whole point of a protagonist is they're supposed to have agency you know their actions are supposed to matter you know and there are plenty of times in which the the, the point of a film where the protagonist takes action and that makes things worse you know, that can be a valid film, too. But it's what always bugs me is when the protagonist takes action and then in the end it turns out, oh, hey, none of those actions really mattered. It doesn't kill the film completely, but man, is it a storytelling mistake in my eyes. Um, I mean, I'm not I'm not going I'm not going to disagree with you, um, except that I guess you could say these things would have been different. One, I think that the actions of the girls especially when it comes to Hedwig uh, really does push forward like maybe like like ramp up the timeline of the beast I think that their struggle against him actually makes everything happen faster um I also think Casey I also think Casey probably would have been killed as well um and that when he was done killing her he'd see the scars and be like oh well I guess she was you know what I mean like I think that 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 through and it's it's a dumb thing, but through her struggles, she happens to get all her clothes ripped off. So, because of that, they see the scars. Um, I mean, the I, that, that's a possibility. Of you. Boy, it's... you you wear a lot of shirts, um, and I guess that pays off at the end that she's trying to hide her scar- scars. It's too little, too late at the end because by the end, it just seems like a joke. And then I'm like, oh, yeah. that's why she's wearing. I guess that's the twist. Oh, what a twist. Yeah. That's why she's wearing the shirts because she's hiding scars. And I was just like, oh, they're just saying that to justify that the actress didn't want to take her shirt off like everybody else. Um, Mm -hmm. It just seemed that way. Um, That being said, I'm not okay with all the shirt taking off in the movie. I understand that they're that in universe the reason they're doing it is because they want to show that she's wearing all the shirts to cover up what she is um i didn't I, i'll be like, honest i didn't even notice the fact that she was wearing all the shirts you didn't even you didn't even need oh that. he you keeps saying it no kevin keeps kevin, kevin keeps saying oh you wear a lot of shirts like it's it's it keeps coming yeah, out that she wears but, a lot of shirts yeah, but, but you, you didn't need that yeah you didn't like 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 you didn't need to have the one in her bra like half the time, the other one in her underwear. It just seemed mm. like like it's it is a horror movie, and I have to like there are horror movie tropes that it follows. Like I had a I've had recently, um, and I've talked about this on this show, and I've talked about it a lot on track on Trek off. Um, uh, had 
a bit of a personal renaissance in what I'm kind of okay with when it comes to the way women are treated in films. Um, mm-hmm. And, you know, the, the concept of fridging, the fact that I did so terribly about this and ninjas versus monsters in particular, um, that I, you know, that I, the brutalization of, of women in films. That being said, there is an element of horror that has always been about this. Um, I just saw a wonderful movie the, uh, a couple of weeks ago called Hush that was about um, a woman who couldn't see or speak, who was, you know, your, your typical, you know, she's, she is in the physical shape of a, of a, you know, typical Hollywood character um, with a, a larger, more aggressive, more test, testosterone filled, crazy man who is, who is hunting and, and torturing and eventually going to try and kill her. Um, mm-hmm. the concept of, you know, the fact is with men being physically stronger than women, um, that, it, and the fact that, that in most situations, a man at the height of his strength and a woman at the height of her strength, a man would be dangerous to the woman has been, you know, that that's a horrible thing. And horror has often been about, you know, the, the horror and the fear of that happening. And then eventually the, you know, what is known as the final girl overcoming that. And there's, you know, movies mm-hmm. like Nightmare on Elm Street um, have even codified the, the, you know, sexual nature of that as well. Um, and I th- that and is, that's, that, that's a, that is part of that. That is part of horror. It always has been the big, strong man, you know, does bad things to the weaker woman until the one who's got the, the, the mental fortitude is able to eventually defeat him. That's part mm-hmm. of horror. Should it be? Um, I don't know because it is part of life too. And, and horror is about talking about the fears that we have in life. And certainly I've seen enough women talk about like how much it sucks that they have to walk to their car carrying pepper spray and how like, mm-hmm. why does the world have to be so crappy in that way? Um, and yeah. I feel like horror like this is a, is a manifestation of that suckiness of the world, but is it feeding into the suckiness of the world? I think this is a valid question that I pose to you. It it's, is, is, and it does, it, it, it is a good question. It's certainly applies in a lot of ways in which when, whenever you're commenting on, you know, whenever you're commenting on a social ill, sometimes the way that you comment on it might in its own way further that social ill. Um, I think in terms of the, well, since we're talking about it, the, the terms of the, like I, in nudity or, you know, or scantily cladness in a horror film, um, to me, there's like a spectrum of when it's quote unquote acceptable and when it's not. Uh, one of the purposes, I think, of, you know, of scantily cladness is horror is about being made to feel vulnerable. That is when we are at our most scared is when we are at our most vulnerable. And there is a reason why people talk about the nightmare of being standing up in front of your class uh, wearing nothing but your underwear. Uh, We feel tremendously exposed when we are nude or semi-nude. It is not a... It is not a place of strength. It's a place of extreme vulnerability. Uh, I actually love how in uh, one of the Gunslinger novels by Stephen King, uh, they comment that uh, the main character sees this other guy and recognizes that he has a true warrior's heart because he is completely unafraid to fight uh, completely naked. Um, And that, to me, that's an interesting thing worth exploring. 
Um, but as you have said, you know, through the history of horror films, sometime the other end of that spectrum is, uh, you know, nude and scantily clad because it's sexy. And yeah, sometimes you can get some really- Or titillating. Or titillating. Yeah, or titillating. Yeah. 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 Titillating. It's one, on one end of the spectrum, you have nudity as a way of furthering the character- uh, furthering the character's agency, giving them a greater challenge to overcome by being in a state of vulnerability. On the other end of the spectrum, you have it because it's objectifying the character as just uh, basically uh, her being there to give the viewing audience, uh, you know, to let the viewing audience get a little bit of their jollies. Um, and uh, yeah, anyway, Which that's, is this. That, to me, I mean, that's, that's the, so, the so, so, so there is, there is, um, a character in a relative state of, of undress and silence of the lambs, right? When she's down at the bottom of the pit, you know, that is, mm-hmm. you know, that, that, that is in no way, I find that no way titillating. It's worth noting yeah. that. It's a good that point. That one, per- that one is completely on one end of the spectrum. This, this particular girl is, is wearing the tightest sweater to start with in, in the sweater. She looks like she has like, like the biggest boobs, um, which mm-hmm. it doesn't even seem that way out of the sweater, but in the sweater, it's, 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 she's like, it's, I know she's supposed to be a teenage child, which is ups- like concerning to me to start with, but I guess that's, you know, that's all ho- horror movies are about teenage girls a lot of the time. So I'll give the movie that, mm-hmm. um, she is the most conventionally Hollywood pretty of the three of them. Um, they're mm-hmm. your most typical sort of pretty horror movie. Which girl. one are we talking about here? Um, Marsha. Marshall. She okay. is she's she's the one she is the one whose outfit and looks would be at home in a Friday the 13th film. Got it. Um whereas the other two might not be. Um she is uh asked to take off her shirt and stands there in her bra and certainly she feels vulnerable but I can't tell you that the male audience members would not be getting a certain amount of perverse jolly off of it and maybe because of the forceful nature of it um, the sort of jolly that maybe they shouldn't. I mean, it's not, mm-hmm. it's presented. I feel like the female members of the audience would be mortified from it and maybe feel the vulnerability that she has. But I don't feel that the male audiences, the male audience members are getting a sense of the vulnerability that she has. And that in fact, I yeah. think that it is that I, I think that I think the moment is titillating. I don't know if night intends for it to be titillating. Um, mm-hmm. it doesn't seem necessarily deliberately exploitative. Um, no, but I can't, but I also seem can't accidentally t- exploitative though. Yeah. It, I can't tell you that it's not deliberately exploitative either because they want a shot of a girl in her bra in the trailer. You know, like I can't tell you that that's necessary. I don't mm-hmm. know. I don't know. And, and, and the fact I, that she is as disempowered, the, the fact that the scene is a little bit rapey. Um, and also titillating mm-hmm. at the same time. I don't mind like 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 titillating shots in horror movies. You know the 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 girl who takes her 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 shirt sh- like there's a great moment in uh, in Jason X where it's a hologram of a girl and she you know two girls take their shirts off and their boobs start bouncing and they go they go they, they go and we just love premarital sex. That's a funny moment. You know that's that's that's, that's funny because that's the, that's clearly commentary about the yeah yeah. Um, and so, but it seems like the characters are also sort of in on the joke of the moment too. That's um, a nice way is, of putting it. Yeah. Like this is, this moment is so rapey and also titillating at the same time that I think that, that it, I don't know. I feel like, I feel like it's, it mm-hmm. alone is a misstep. 
Um, so for that, for that reason, um, you might be right that, that nothing would have, that nothing might've been different. Um, and I don't know if that is necessarily my, my, my biggest problem. I do think that, um, that Shyamalan, his films do tend to have stuff that just happens, right? They do have more of a deus ex machina quality to them. Mel Gibson's wife had to die in signs so that she could say swing away so that at some point later he would be holding a baseball bat and and or or Mm -hmm. his brother be holding a baseball bat and there'd be an alien there and he would tell his brother to swing the baseball bat and hurt the alien which probably would have happened anyway but (laughs) (laughs) but she had to die to pass on that message there is a lot of you know stuff just happens two characters mm-hmm. and he would say that that is part of the message of his film that that you know that randomness is not randomness and fate is fate and blah 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 i don't know if that works mm-hmm. i think in the i think that what saves this film is it's moment to moment um and i am with like i, I want to be clear i am with casey i am with casey but it occurred to me watching it this time that when marshall was like let's take him on i'm like yeah you should totally yeah, do that like what? It's not going to end up worse for you, Marsha. It's not going to end up worse for you at all. It's a great idea. Yes. Do that. The whole see fla- how that the works whole out. Flashback thing of yeah, the whole flashback thing of you know Casey, you know going on a hunting trip and everything. I thought there was going to be honestly, I thought they were going to make more of the whole. Oh, her dad taught her how to hunt. He does this whole thing about like this is how you have to think like the deer. You have to think like they. There was clearly so much you know human versus beast imagery being thrown into this film that none of it really went anywhere at the end. Um, it was just kind of there. Like, so let me give the film know, clearly this, it was, let me give the film sorry, this though, because you're right that it mm-hmm. doesn't go anywhere, but what the, where the film succeeds. And I feel like, I feel like we're putting out all the bad stuff first. I want to, I want to, yeah, no, I, 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 that's, I want to move like on to the good stuff movie. soon. Cause yeah, this is a really good movie. Actually, what this film does is it keeps setting up a way for the good guys to win that doesn't work. Sometimes it sometimes what that means is that it puts them in even a worse situation and sometimes they get reset to where they were. But you mm-hmm. keep feeling like, oh, this is, oh, good, this is going to work. And then it drags it out in your tents. Okay, we're going to watch them succeed and they don't succeed and they get snapped back. And you know what? For a for a, a film of this kind with these performances that just are that are fun to watch on their own, that is actually an effective way to spend a couple of hours watching them get this close it's, to making it's a it's a film it. of fa- it it is a film of failed opportunities. Yeah, and and watching that over and over and over again because it really does happen. They're always one inch away from escaping, and they keep trying yeah. different plans, and none of the plans work. None of the plans work. Nothing that anybody does works in this film. Yeah. Um, oh, you and Kyle. Yeah, that's true. But it's, you know, and maybe it's ultimately a little less satisfying that that's the case. But while you're watching the film, having that be the case, if you call this a horror movie, that's that's a great way to do a horror movie. I've never seen a horror movie that's quite so done that way. And it works. So it's not a bug. So it's not a bug. It's a feature. Um. Yeah, maybe. Maybe just the idea that that you know, for the course of two hours that nothing works and you get drawn mm-hmm. into these tense situations and you, because it is tense. It's like every time they almost make it, it's tense. And then it doesn't work out for them. You're like, Oh no. 
Um, yeah, I mean, there is uh, something to be said for there are certain horror films that are about the you get the scares, but then ultimately you get the happiness of seeing the person triumph at the end. But then there's also a whole other aspect of horror films that are much more about like just encapsulating. No, at the end of the day, we're all helpless to fate. Um, you know, H.P. Lovecraft, his whole Cthulhu mythos, he was one of the, they call him one of the, you know, he was the founders of modern horror, like him and, and Poe were two of the big ones. Um, but his whole worldview, his Cthulhu mythos with, uh, you know, these great old gods, the whole point of it was there is literally nothing we can do that's going to affect anything because the beings that really have the power are so titanically massive that we are less than ants to them. And so many of his stories end with the characters just going insane from recognizing just how insignificant they truly are. So, you know, that sense of being of helplessness and no matter what actions you try, you can't escape the inevitable. Uh, you, you make a good point. It's that is that's a crucial aspect of many, many horror stories. And keep in mind, the this is ultimately set up like a slasher film. This is ultimately set up where you've got, you know, you know, the three teenage female characters and like, you know, if I were to say, hey, which of these characters remind you most of Nancy from A Nightmare on Elm Street? Well, clearly it's Casey. Like clearly yeah. that is, you know, that she has the final girl archetype, um, you know, and clearly she, you know, there there is her disrobing um, is a revelation of her armor. Ultimately, like she goes from like, like it's there's an element of that. Ooh, that's to, a nice, like, for it's a very nice phrase. Yeah. Well, I would look at I would look at, you know, if you look at Ripley in Aliens, you know, she wears less and less over the course of Aliens and none of it's titillating. There's, you know, there's titillating moments in Alien with Sigourney Weaver, but in Aliens at the end, she eventually rips off her jacket, ties it around and she's just wearing like a, a, a form fitting shirt and strapping on the guns. And there's, you know, she ends up looking like Linda Hamilton from Terminator 2, also a Cameron film. Um and there's a moment of of that revelation of 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 her armor, and that is, you know, again, there is an old, you know, an old trope that says in 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 films, the the more a man wears, the more powerful he is, and the less a woman wears, the more powerful she is. Um, That's an interesting that trope. A, I would because I've never heard of that, but the but just what you were describing made me really think. Um, just with characters in in horror, especially, um, and primarily for women, but also for men too, I think. It's kind of neat thinking about, okay, there are some characters with whom the more, I mean, this sounds blunt and maybe even crass almost, but the the more clothing they lose, the weaker they become. But then there are the characters that you really watch who the more clothing they lose, the more powerful they become. And like, I'll be I'll be honest. I don't think it's a I don't think it's a good trope. I think it's a trope that needs to be undone. I love it's one of the reasons mm-hmm. I love what's happening in comics now. Um, the new Batgirl, the new Batgirl costume, the Captain Marvel costume. If you look at the costumes, mm-hmm. they like the costume that Captain Marvel back when she was Ms. Marvel, the Carol Danvers used to wear is essentially a bathing suit. It's essentially a bathing suit, mm-hmm. Bare, yeah. bathing suit with 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 thigh high boots. But her, you know, her groin is right there on display. Um, and and now you know, and same thing with Batgirl. Batgirl, Batgirl was essentially this cat suit that essentially, if you drew nipples on, she'd be naked. Um, it's mm-hmm. not the case anymore. So I think the idea that this is changing, and again, we're two dudes talking about it, which is always yeah. a weird place to be because there there is always that animal brain that's in our heads. It's like, look, parts um, that we have to that we have to break off of our brain if we can. Um, 
and I think that that I love that the trait's going that way. So maybe the idea of the of the you're more powerful the more you're exposed trope is one that should go away. That's a trope that's maybe what happens when men run all the media for so many years. Um, it's something you know. You know what I would say is that it's it's like communism. In theory, it totally makes sense. In practice, it has serious unintended consequences. The idea of the true hero's nature being revealed, like the more vul- like the idea of, oh, it is at your most vulnerable that you become your most strong, that has tremendous potential as a storytelling idea. I mean, I love that. Um, the The problem is, is and, and it makes sense to... Uh, on a certain level to use stripping away clothing as a sense of making the character more vulnerable. It's a very visceral thing. Uh, the reason why it you know, doesn't work so well in practice is that because as you're doing that, you are also engaging you know, that other animal part of the viewer's brain so that the message that you were maybe trying to go for gets completely obscured by, uh, by the unintended effect of titillation. Here's, here's And then I want to jump to other other great things about the film that we can talk about but here yes. is here is how i can identify that while what you're saying would be nice i don't think what you're saying is the way it is and this is this i don't see this trope being manifested for older fatter or less less conventionally attractive women point um i don't i don't see the doctor that was not the case for the doctor in this she did not gain power by stripping mm-hmm. her clothes down. You know, that's not the way that that was. Um, so what they reveal is always conventionally attractive as opposed to, you know, yeah. you know, I don't, I, I don't see that happening to, you know, to real women in their late fifties. You know, that's not going to be the case. Um, Although now that you mention it, and again, this, <laughs> I could be totally off base on that, but wouldn't that be a bold and badass choice for a horror film? Um, Yeah. I would love that. I would love if if it was empowering and not exploitative so people go, "Ew." Yeah. You know, like mm-hmm. it's, you know, I think I think that um you know, I I'm reminded of, you know, and it's it's men in this case, but the film The Full Monty does it really really well. Um you know, so I I it's it's again, I feel underqualified. I wish that we you know, I wish Alexia were on on the show with us right now to have this discussion with us because mm-hmm. I think that our our perspective is is certainly not a hundred percent. Yeah, our, our like we. I think we both understand. There's always going to be certain limits on our perspective that we're not going to be over able to overcome. Yeah. But, all right. Let's talk about some really good stuff. All right. Let's talk uh, about for, the great stuff. Uh, James yeah, McAvoy. James McAvoy. James um, effing to the, McAvoy. To the point where I said to to Mrs. J last night, I said I, I said, hey, you know, and he's also like he's also I great as Professor X, and she's like, oh my gosh, he's Professor X, isn't he? Because you forget it. Even though he's bald in this film, oh, that's, that's you, a good point. You forget it. I found myself going, "This guy's so good. They should they should give this guy a franchise." <laughs> and I'm like, "Oh wait, <laughs> oh wait." He, he literally has. He literally is the most recognizable person in a superhero franchise right now. <laughs> um, and yet, and yet, he disappears in this role so much. Uh, he, this this person's a, he's amazing. He's incredible. Yeah. He is incredible in this film. Um, you know, I got the I sense know. in the, the 
one of the final scenes where he's, you know, where she essentially, she activates Kevin, which forces him to start cycling through all his personalities. Um, there was a certain element of that, which was just like, okay, now you're just giving the actor the chance to show off. But I also didn't care because he was doing it wonderfully. Like, and the fact that the camera didn't peel, like the camera stayed on him as he's going through each transformation. Like it wasn't a cutaway for each one was just a tremendous tour de force. Well, and I look at this and I want to see if this is true because this bums me out here. Um, He was not even nominated for best actor in a movie at the Oscars. Um, And horror films just get their snub with respect. What does one need to do? To be nominated for best actor in a film. Uh, I, really? I believe I have the answer to that. Get mauled by a bear and willingly submit yourself to sub-freezing temperatures for an extreme amount of time. Okay, maybe that's that, what That is takes... the measure for good acting in the, the Academy Awards now. So Tom Cruise is going to win for Mission Impossible Fallout this year then? Well, because... I was I was thinking more of the I was thinking more of the Revenant because there was that brings up the article. I, about I just know, like, I know. Just giving these know actors awards the for what they submit themselves to. Well, then Tom Cruise should win every movie that he does because Tom Cruise, I'm sure they're thinking about the next Mission Impossible movie and then Tom Cruise is going, okay, I want to light my legs on fire while falling <laughs> off a building, while falling off a building, and then I'm while actually going in to bees. Take, a, <laughs> take a gun and shoot myself through the hand while it happens. I'm sure I'll be fine. I want that best actor. I mean, yeah, there's something I mean, to that. What does one need to do? I mean, this is the, like, I, maybe he doesn't have to win, but to get nominated, I've, I've, mm-hmm. like, if you ask me top 20 acting performances in a film, I will probably call this one up. This is astounding. He is astounding. He is a revelation. Um, I am, I am so with James McAvoy in this film, um, and the different characters watching him switch in between, um, is is nothing short of of amazing. Mm-hmm. Now, yeah, remember, is James Ackavoy a uh, is he is he an actual is he actually an English actor? Yes. Okay, that explains a lot. And you've heard me say this before, but I'll say it again. The this is a gross stereotype, but to me, one of the major differences between the English and American approaches to acting is that the English training uh, teaches you to use your body and your voice as an instrument. Uh, with the theory that you don't just hand a child a violin and tell them to feel Mozart. You have them go through their scales. You have the, like you master the instrument and then you use the instrument to convey uh, poetry. Uh, the American model, which is much more film-based, which is, uh, as, as you once said, it's like, well, I, need, I don't need somebody uh, who can give me the line I need every single time. I need somebody who looks the look that I want because I can get them to give me the line I need once. Um, American acting is more about just being the truest you that you can possibly be. And that's, and it's delivered some phenomenal performances. I mean, shoot, you know, some of the stuff that Marlon Brando does, uh, in his earlier work, it's, there is a rawness to the quality that can be tremendously powerful and cutting. Uh, however, one of the strengths that the English style brings that I love is it allows you to transform yourself. Uh, you know, I have found English actors are in general able to play a wider range of characters uh, than American actors are. And again, that's a, you know, that's a gross oversimplification, but, uh, but certainly uh, this would be an example of that. Like, you know, 
totally transformative from moment to moment. Well, I'm I'm reminded of the story that I heard about Ian Holm playing Bilbo Baggins, uh, where he just went to Peter Jackson and said, I'm going to give you a different performance every single time we do it. Every single every single like line I'm gonna give you, it's it's gonna be different. Every single take that we do, I will do something different in the performance. Um and you can craft in the editing the performance that you want. I'm gonna give you all oh, the tools that you need to craft what you want. Mm-hmm. So so, you know, when when Gandalf was like, Is it really that hard to get rid of the ring? or whatever, and he goes, he goes, No. And yes. That mm-hmm. it was really when he performed it, it was like, No, and yes, and no. And yes, and he's giving them the pieces. So in the editing room, you just have all the notes to play. And that was a deliberate Mm -hmm. choice. And that's how he uses that is he in the moment he can give, he can take a line and he can study the line to say it and go, okay, I've come up with these 10 different ways. And I feel that all 10 of them are effective and you can choose which of them you like the best, which I think that is about the most exemplary of the, of the, British style that we're talking about that I've ever heard. It's just yeah, like, I mean, certainly, I, stu- I mean, talk about a, a director's dream. Yeah. I mean, a patient director, a, a director with times, a patient director, a director with plenty yeah. of time and not limited resources and money. Yes. Yeah. It's not, he's not an indie director's dream. I don't think he would have done that yeah. well in this film. I guess that's true. Cause hey. I can certainly see as a director it would be just like, that's awesome. Thank you. Why don't you just give me the good take first? Yeah, because we because film costs money and we only have a little bit more time. Yeah. So come on. Mm-hmm. Um, but uh, <laughs> but uh, but it's and look, I'm not saying that he would not be able to adjust his. I, let's be clear. Let's let's be fair to Ian Holm. He would very likely be able to adjust his performance to do whatever you need to do. If he's like, oh, you want it once? OK, here's the best one. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah. The fact that he's able to do that. And so, like, yes, I do think that this is something that uh, American actors might have a harder time doing but i'm sure that there are those who i think that it, at this point in acting i think that oh yeah so many it's, people it's certainly I'm sure not there are plenty a, yeah of, i'm talking about american actors who went over to england to study right i mean it's like it's mm-hmm. i don't want to, to crap all over american actors uh i mean you and i both studied acting in america and i think we're okay we do okay yeah, you we turned out well and like i said our share of shakespeare <laughs> and there's there are um you know there's there's strengths and weaknesses to to either approach um you know, like I said, there are certain actors, I mean, there are certain actors out there, both American and English, who really can only play one thing, but they play it so well and with such raw sincerity and purity that that's fine. That's the only thing you want to see them do. Well, and that's really helpful in film, especially when you're like, okay, I need to be able to market to, I need to be able to market to the, to the American masses come see this film and one of the things I need to do is if they like an actor you know if I hire Robert Downey Jr. I want him to come do Robert Downey Jr. and because yes. the audience is going to like oh I want to go see oh Robert Downey Jr. and doing this and you write the role and you go you know what would be great in this like a Robert Downey Jr. would be amazing mm-hmm. and go okay well let's get him to do it and that I mean that I think that that is you know that I understand that as a filmmaker I understand that as an actor I'm oh, like it's that's totally not valid. Um, mm-hmm. uh I want to say, you know, I'm going to totally, we're going to go totally out of left field to say something personal because, uh, because why not? Uh, I hope you guys like hearing this little bit of, uh, of, of inside baseball that we're talking about here. But, um, I found it interesting when you and I were doing, um, Romeo and Juliet together, mm-hmm. that if you were to watch your performance, your performance, um, I have felt was so focused and so on point and, and I would not call it improvisational, 
at all. Um, I would say that you were you were absolutely focused. You would belong on. I, I felt in that performance you would belong on stage, on you know on the British stage. It was a performance that I was very oh, jealous. Signed of. of you. Um, oh. um, in it when I watched it, it was it was dare I say a very British performance if I can say that you weren't doing it in a British accent or anything, but it was just a it was a, it was mm-hmm. a very precise particular performance. Um, my approach to Shakespeare is much more loosey goosey. Um, yeah. To the to the point where 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 I, directors have told me that my gift with Shakespeare is that I can take these lines that are clearly not conversational and make them sound totally conversational and understandable, mm-hmm. and that that's yeah. something that that's my gift with Shakespeare. I can take these lines and 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 just roll them out like I'm just a guy on the street saying them, and maybe I'm destroying the beauty of them somewhat, but I'm also demystifying them for the audience. Uh, for yeah, you're an making audience it that isn't as familiar. Well, I think it's um, very telling that you. Your favorite version of Much Ado About Nothing is uh, the Joss Whedon version, which is which is both the actors and the director in that very much are all about just just say the lines. Whereas my favorite version of Much Ado About Nothing is absolutely Kenneth Branagh's version, where everyone is speaking with this highfalutin eloquence to it, uh, with the exception of Keanu Reeves. Um, uh, so well, what and I neither find of those fascinating. Are... Mm-hmm. What I was going to say, what I what I found fascinating about your approach uh, to that was. Before that show, you were like listening to music to get in the mood. You were, you were, you were, you were, you had a, a whole like, like preparation that you did. This emotional preparation that you had to go out and do it. Um, that you were, you know, you were the guy who brought in the game system for everyone to play, and then you never played it before the show because like forgotten about that because <laughs> you you like you 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 would sit there and you you would you get hyper focused i couldn't even talk to you um beforehand which was weird because we were really good friends by then um and yet i before the show i didn't do that i just kind of walked on i and i did what i was doing um and yet i yet in the moment of the show i i got very kind of feely and like it was it was it was much more mm-hmm. an improvisational whatever comes to mind from a from an emotional standpoint well, your, so was your tybalt that- had a very your your tybalt had a very raw energy uh to it which is great for the character because i mean he is he, tybalt was a character of rage and which is weird because because it, you would think that was just pouring off of you the whole time you would think that you'd be the one who'd be backstage and you wouldn't need to do all that much preparation. You know, you'd be very much like Lawrence Olivier going, what, can't you act? You know, like that would be you because yours was so precise. You think that I would be the one sitting backstage, getting myself into a rage, watching pictures of burning babies to get there. So I'm just like <laughs> in the emotional place. So our preparation was the opposite of what you'd expect and yet of, of what our performances were. I just found it really, really interesting. Um, That's funny. Neither, yeah. I, I will also neither say performance just for, uh, or preparation a- is, is, is improper. Both are fine. Are, are, are I will I will let the bad. listening world I will let the listening world into a little secret when it comes to the ways that actors prepare. Um, at the end of all of it, at least this, this is my own this is my own view on it. At the end of all of it, and it's certainly what you saw when I was doing my preparations for Romeo. There's just a a desperation to try to capture that moment of quote unquote emotional truth, and we will try anything to chase it. Uh, you know, so it's just like hmm, for this role, I guess, you know, listening to music ahead of time. Let, let me try that. Maybe that'll help me get there. Oh, OK, that did to varying degrees of success. What's this? I should take my wooden katana and go do practice katas in order to get into a moment of emotional truth. Hey, if that helps, I'll do that, too. Like as actors, we are so desperate chasing that like we are. It is it is a theatrical equivalent of chasing the dragon. 
um, we are so desperate to reach that moment that when you see us trying to do all these super serious like acting preparations and everything like that, all it is is we're just like, I'm just throwing everything at the wall and seeing what sticks here. I will I will my, argue with you in this. I will it. say I will say some of us are like that and some of us would like to be like that, but darn is Tekken fun to play. So <laughs> <laughs> so some of us are just like, yeah, I think I'll probably get there. I'll do another round. Yeah, it'll be fine. Yeah. And, and and a lot of it depends on the show you're trying to do. I mean, if I saw some I mean, the worst thing that you could do is if somebody was if somebody was doing like noises off or some other like true farce comedy and I was just like, no, it's just really important for me to get into the role of like the, you know, the angry high strung director right now. I'm just like, oh no, you're you're totally doing this wrong. Okay, we're so off the rails on on. Split, we're so guys. off the rails. That's okay. Um, well, it, James McAvoy took us there because his performance was so good. You know what? Our podcast developed another personality for a little while. It was the actor. Oh, I see what you did there. <laughs> and now and now we're back. Hello, we're back to Hello. split. Um, uh, he's great. Uh, and his intensity is spectacular. And and the characterization is is so raw especially at the end it's, it's i think the word is the word brave okay for this performance um oh i think so this you, could, yeah it, ha, it has to i mean lots of times we we say brave when we see somebody doing something that doesn't quite land because they just threw themselves into it so much it's very easy to forget that the times when they throw themselves into it and it does land 100 percent also requires a tremendous amount of bravery in the performance yeah um Okay, so uh, so other things, uh, other things that did work. Um, uh, we shout had, out to uh, Betty Buckley, um, yep. you know, uh, who most people do not know, or most regular <laughs> regular people, as opposed to non theater people, uh, you know, to most people don't actually know she's not a household name, but she's a you know a big Broadway performer. I actually just saw her do Hello Dolly uh, here in Orlando a few months ago, and she was wonderful. Uh, it was really cool to see her uh, in a completely different environment. Um, we have, uh, we, we have just, uh, just a few other things here to talk about as we get to, uh, as we start moving toward the end. Um, I also want to give, um, a lot of, uh, a lot of, uh, credit to, um, Casey, uh, who is played by Anna Taylor-Joy. She brings, uh, such a quiet, haunted, focused performance, um, that I think, I don't think McAvoy's performance would work if he wasn't working on someone who would looked genuinely mortified by what was going yes. on. Yes. Um, if you yeah. weren't able no, to cut to when, he, when he's doing when he's doing the Kanye West dance, if you weren't able to cut to her just crushingly broken by that. Oh, because of the window. Worked. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um uh so I want I want to to give that to her too. Here's a key question. Were you scared? Um, no, I, and that's the thing for me. I didn't, I came into this, not really looking at it as a horror film. I was hamstrung by the fact that I knew that this took place in the unbreakable world by the fact that I knew that there was going to be this third movie. So I, I was thinking of it, not, I wasn't thinking of it specifically as a superhero film because this is in no way a superhero film. Um, I mean, it's maybe an origin story for a supervillain, um, but I wasn't thinking at, I, I didn't approach this movie uh, from a sense of, ooh, I'm going to get scared here. Um, so I didn't really feel that way. But certainly I could see why, you know, if somebody just walked into this film in the, uh, 
you know, in the theater with no knowledge that, oh, no, James McAvoy's character is clearly going to be around because there's another film coming out with them. But like truly no knowledge of what would happen next. Yeah, I could absolutely see uh, more of a sense of, of being afraid. I would say that, that at the time, I was certainly very, very tense. I wasn't expecting the other two girls to die in such remarkable yeah. ways. Um, that mm-hmm. was that was not part that of the rough. course for Shyamalan, certainly. Um, uh, and I would say that this time around, it felt more like a superhero origin story because I, I heard, suddenly I was like, how did I not catch that this was part of the Unbreakable universe? Because they're saying all mm-hmm. the same things. You'll believe all the same, you, yeah. You make, yeah, it, it, really seemed, it, it really seemed to fit. So on... Uh, on a scale of one to five personalities. Personalities? What would, what would <laughs> that, was, that one was just so there. We both had to go for it. Yeah. What would you give Split? Um, I would... Oh, man. From a personal perspective, um, it would be a 3.5. And that's because acknowledging just how really good the film was or something like... I was just... I was still... I didn't like the way that the story panned out. I don't like watching films where characters don't have agency. Now, granted, that is also one of the reasons why I'm not that big into horror films in general. Um, I would raise it after this discussion. Um, I would raise it to at least a 3.75, probably a four, just by virtue of uh, the talent level of the of the actors, as well as, you know, some really fine filmmaking, some great, uh, great musical score, some great camera shots, uh, good, you know, some great pacing in terms of building up the tension. Uh, so yeah, somewhere I'm, I am, I am undecided split, if you will, between 3.75 and four. I'm going to go ahead and give it a four. And I will say this for my, my four is for two reasons. One, because there is a certain joy. You, know, we, you and I both watch Shakespeare, like we said, and we've been in Shakespeare. And you, we've seen most of the plays at this point. Um, but when a play comes to a theater and you hear Patrick Stewart is going to be doing it, you go see the thing you've seen before just to watch this guy. Just for Patrick Stewart. Yeah. Do it good. Um, now, this guy, young Patrick Stewart. Uh, ha, ha, Charles Xavier. Um, uh-huh. uh, there, there, is, there is joy in just watching a good actor act. I love it. It's like watching somebody who can really play piano. You know, I don't, I don't love Gershwin, but damn it. I love to watch a guy play Gershwin on piano. Ooh, um, because yeah, good it, point. Um, so, uh, and then there's also this, this realm of, of movies that, you know, these, these low budget, thrill, lower budget thrillers that used to come out all the time, usually, you know, in the, like in the early, like Februarys and stuff like that. I remember, you know, in the nineties, you'd get these a lot. They would have Nicolas Cage or, or um, Michael Douglas in them. Right. And there would just be these films mm-hmm. that were, that were a good kind of tense way to pass a couple of hours. And then you go on and you go out, out to dinner. Um, I think this absolutely would fit into that category. Had it just had an okay performance by James McAvoy. Certainly a, a passable film, a, a, a decent enough way to, to spend your time elevated by him. So, yes, I would give, give it a 3.5 elevated to a four by the performance of James McAvoy. Now, the mm. end of this film does have Bruce Willis. Um, uh, it does not seem as shoehorned in this time. If, when I first saw it, it felt shoehorned in. But then watching this t- film around, I listened to the themes as they were talking. I was like, oh, yeah, totally. This is totally. Yeah, I actually- also did appreciate how that fit that it's I think it's very pointed that that scene takes place after the title split flashes across the screen. So you get the sense yeah. that it's like it was this. There was a sense of no, the movie finished on James McAvoy. This is just a little, you know, an after dinner aperitif or whatever, um, specifically yeah. for those who saw Unbreakable. And I will say this. I, you know, split is 
poised to be a gigantic hit by box office uh, like projections. It's also only ranging about thirty percent split. Uh, oh, sorry, glass. Um, only rating mm-hmm. about a thirty percent on Rotten Tomatoes, which it concerns me. But that does mean that thirty percent of the the critics did like it. So mm-hmm. I've liked plenty of films that other people didn't get. So I'm still willing, willing to yeah. give Glass its chance. Uh, it comes out this week. I am and we're predisposed to like movies. Monday or so, um, yeah. so I'm looking forward to Glass. But for now, my name is Justin, and my name is Arthur. And hey there, true believers, stay super. One last reminder before you go to go to getcancelled.com. That's getcancelled.com to help us make cancellation the motion picture. Look at the rewards there. Look for opportunities to hear your voice and your message heard on Totally Super and Trek Off. Please help us make cancellation the motion picture by going to getcancelled.com or looking up cancellation on Kickstarter. <laughs>